Amen. Amen. Church, don't ever take for granted God's presence among His people. Amen. How many, how many of y'all can remember a time in the history of the world where if you wanted to make a phone call, you had to be standing beside a wall? I can, I can almost remember a time before everybody, you know, had a phone with them constantly. And even though, you know, some of us may be rightly concerned about our kids and how much screen time they have and how they're addicted to their phones and how aggravating those things are, uh, the truth is we are addicted to our phones, aren't we? I read just this week that on average, the average American with a cell phone touches their phone 2,617 times a day. I also heard last week, I heard last week that your cell phone has more bacteria on it than a toilet seat. So, you're welcome for that. But our, our phones, as aggravating as they are, as troubling as they might be, our phones through our ability to, to make phone calls, send text messages, leave voicemails, use social media apps like Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and whatever your kids have now that they're hiding from you because you're old and lame, um, and they are, uh, what... What our phones really represent is, is our ability to know and our ability to be known. They represent our ability to express who we are to other people and for us to hear from other people who they are. Just the other day, I, for whatever reason, my phone randomly sent me five voicemails that I'd missed. I didn't even miss phone calls, but five voicemails. And in a moment, I, I panicked. You know, I thought, oh no, the world's coming to an end because I don't know what's happening. What's going on with all these people? And I listened to them, and of course, none of it was anything important. So I proceeded not to call any of y'all back. But you know what it's like. You know what it's like feeling like uh, you're, you're not connected. And our phones represent that. We like to know other people. And we have this need to make ourselves known. So where does that come from? Are we just nosy? Maybe. Do we just use Facebook to spy on people so we'll know what to preach about on Sunday? Maybe sometimes. But, some of y'all heard that. But, the Bible actually teaches us that we are made in the image of God. And that means a lot, but part of what that means is that our God is a God who Himself is working to make Himself known. And who desires to know us. And so like God, we want to be known. We want to make ourselves known. We want to be aware of our place in the world and communicate to other people. Because that's how God Himself is. God is a God who is working to make Himself known. But think about the weight of this question for just a moment. How do we know what God is really like? How do you know what God expects of you? How do you know if there's a problem between you and God? And how do you know the solution to that problem? In life, how can you really be sure that God is speaking to you and you're not just experiencing the side effects of some bad Mexican food? How do you know what the voice of God is really like? Theologians would describe and give you that answer under the heading of the topic of Revelation. The doctrine of revelation is the process by which God makes Himself known. Now, I know in a Baptist church in Alabama, you hear the word revelation, and you think of the last book of the Bible. You think of the moon turning to blood, and you think of bad Nicolas Cage movies. But why 
But what is revelation? How is it that God works to make Himself known? Over the next few weeks on Sunday mornings, I want us to spend some time studying the doctrine of revelation and figuring out how it is that God actually speaks to us. How do we know that any of the stuff we think we know about God really is legit? I think this will be beneficial to you today because some of y'all are Christians and you are at the point in your life where you're about to make some of the most important decisions that will shape your future and you think you're doing that based upon what God has told you. But really, you're just navigating by your own feelings and trying to pass those off as the voice of God. Or maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. You're not a follower of Jesus. And you wrestle with the idea that there really is any slam dunk evidence that there is a God out there at all. Or that He actually speaks to us. And I know that many of you have friends who don't follow Jesus. And you want to communicate truth to them about who God is. How do we do that? Well, I'm excited about diving into this over the next few weeks Here's the one big fact I want you to keep in the back of your mind. That our God has spoken to all men in such an inescapable way that our lives, both now and for eternity, are shaped by what God has said. Or another way to say it is this. God has spoken to us in such a clear way that all of us are responsible for what we have heard. Now, not all of us have heard the same amount. And I want to talk about that today in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. So take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 1 and verse number 18. Romans chapter number 1. And then we'll begin reading in the 18th verse. We've got the words on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. Uh, I, I know that I am a young pastor. But I, I, I'm not crazy about the digital Bibles everybody has on their cell phone. I think it does you good to have a Bible with you regardless. At Sharon Heights, we're going to preach the Word of God to you. And so if you're here today and you're thinking about coming back, bring a Bible with you. Or bring a cell phone. Or if uh, you don't have a Bible, uh, find somebody around you that has one and steal theirs. They'll be okay, all right? We want you to have the copy, copy of the Word of God. But Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. Let's stand as we read this today. We want to honor God's Word when we read it. Remind ourselves that we are hearing from God. The Bible says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You can be seated. And we believe God speaks. We believe God speaks through His Word. And we believe God is going to speak to you today. Now, the book of Romans is kind of like the Apostle Paul's greatest hits album. It is filled with all of these vast theological themes. It is filled with the best writing that we have in Scripture. Not that it's better than anything else, but really the clearest explanation that we have in the Bible of what Paul would call in Romans chapter 1 and verse 1, the gospel of God. Really the book of Romans is kind of the magnum opus of Christian thinking. It is as deep as it gets, as good as it gets, as helpful as it gets. And really, the book of Romans is an exposition of one thought that Paul gives in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17, the verse before what we read today, where Paul says, For in it, that is the gospel of Jesus, the righteousness of God 
is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Maybe King James is more familiar to, it, to you. The just shall live by faith. So what the Apostle Paul does in the rest of the book is he unpacks that one idea. That God declares us righteous through faith. What does it mean to be declared righteous? What is the kind of faith that trusts in Jesus? What is the kind of life that I live after I have been justified and declared righteous by Jesus? And he talks about a whole lot of other things, but that's the book of Romans kind of in brief. And really, that is the Bible in brief. Understand today that the Bible is a message of good news. It is about how God takes people who are in their sins and declares them righteous in Jesus. And the book of Romans is probably in the Bible the the deepest, most exhaustive explanation of the nuts and bolts of how all that works. But the gospel is good news. But if it is good news, for good news to really be good, there has to be some bad news that makes the good news both good and newsworthy. And so the Apostle Paul starts here in Romans chapter 1, verse number 18, goes all the way through the middle part of Romans chapter 3, giving us the bad news. And the bad news is that all of us are sinful. And we need to be saved from what he says in verse 18 is the wrath of God. But why is God so angry at me and what is my sin? Well, Paul gives us a brief idea there in verse 18 when he says that men, through their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. We fight the truth about who we are. We fight the truth about who God is. We fight reality. And he says, in idolatry, we invent new realities and live as if they are real. We resist, repress, and resent the truth about God. That's what Paul's writing about in this text. But as you see him writing, it seems pretty obvious that Paul thinks it's clear that the truth about who God is, at least some truth about who God is, is available for everybody to see. So much like Paul saying, if you just open your eyes and look around, you could see some plain truth about God. So how is Paul so adamant about that? Why is he so determined to prove that God has revealed himself to all people? Well, today, I want to try and answer that question by giving you three questions that are going to help us wrap our minds around what theologians call the subject of general revelation. If revelation is the process by which God has made Himself known, general revelation is the process by which God makes general truth, not all truth, but general truth about Himself known to all men. It is both general in its scope to all people and general in its content and what it tells us about God. So how does God reveal Himself to all people in a way that we are all accountable to? Well, there are three questions I would ask today. The first question is uh, what... Where do we learn this from God? The second question is, what do we learn about God? And the third question is, why does it matter? What does it have anything to do with me today? So the first question is, where does God teach us about Himself? Where do we go to find this revelation? Or I would call this the classroom of general revelation. Where is it that we sit and learn about who God is? Paul writes in these verses, if you look at the words he uses, and he's saying to us, verse 19, God has made Himself known. He says that the truth is plain about Him. He's shown it to us in verse number 19. Verse number 20, he says, The invisible attributes of God, he said, they can clearly be seen in the world that we can look at. The fingerprints of God is all around us. And folks, that is today the kindergarten class of Christian theology. Okay? that uh, You remember the first day of kindergarten and they told you to color inside the lines and they had that, that paper with the big lines in it where they taught you how to draw the letter A? This is the kindergarten class of Christian theology. That our God is a God who desires to make Himself known. 
that our God is a God who is both too good and too big and too amazing to keep Himself secret. So if God is telling on Himself, where is He doing it? If God is showing Himself to all people, where is He doing it? Well, first, Paul says here in Romans 1 that He does it in creation. He says that this visible world proves something about the invisible God. The natural world, even though we see it every day without ever really seeing it sometimes, we know that the natural world is vast, complex, incredible, and sometimes it's very captivating, isn't it? Like You can drive by the same set of trees every day for a year. And then one October or November, as those leaves start to change, man, nature just sneaks up on you, doesn't it? And it takes your breath away because you see the beauty and the wonder of creation. That's why there is somewhere right now a tour bus at the Grand Canyon full of people in fanny packs that are getting ready to get out and look at the wonder of that vast display of creation. That's why every summer you do everything you can to carve out for yourself a week of peace just rotting away on a beach. Because you want to be surrounded by the immensity of creation. And the Bible says here in Romans 1, and it says in Psalm chapter 19, that God reveals Himself through creation. Here's what He says. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. People all over the world have different languages. They have different values. They even have different ways of talking about God or the gods or whatever. But every single one of them can look up to the same sky and see evidence that there's someone who put that there. R.C. Sproul, the great theologian, passed away a few years ago and said it this way. So great. He said, the world is a stage for God. He is the chief actor who appears front and center. Then he said, no curtain can fall and obscure his presence. So God shows himself in creation. But Paul goes on in Romans chapter 2 to say that God, who has given this external witness in creation, also has given an internal witness in our conscience. Romans chapter 2 should be just a page over from where you are. Uh, Romans chapter 2, verse number 12. I want to read this paragraph and and just give you the, the snapshot version. Paul says, For all who have sinned without the law, the Old Testament law God gave the people of Israel, will perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now notice this. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, people who do not have any exposure to the word of God, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them, On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of man by Christ Jesus. Our consciences are not perfect. They are fallen and sinful and warped like every other part of us. But it's in there. And there is, inside of people, a sense of right and wrong. A sense of how we ought to act. A sense of how other people ought to act. A sense of what is good for society. And in many places, even though people may believe in God, may not believe in God... Uh, may have no system of government at all like ours, you can go to other parts of the world and find remote tribes that will still tell you, look, it's wrong to kill people. Like, you don't cheat on your spouse after they've been married. You don't take stuff that belongs to other people or they'll run a spear through you. Why do they do that? Because there's something inside of them that God has put there that testifies about who He is. But there's a third element to 
general revelation. The third place that God teaches us about Himself. And I, it's called common grace. Common grace. God shows Himself in creation. God shows Himself internally in conscience. But I think Jesus would add another layer to that by saying that God teaches us something about Himself in what we call common grace. And common grace is the idea that all people, even people that have no relationship with God, even people that may not believe in God, may not like God if they do believe in Him, those people still have experienced the grace of God in some way. They have not experienced the saving grace of God, but God has been good to them because God is good. Jesus taught this in Matthew 5, 43. He said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, because that's the way the world works, right? But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now notice this sentence. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Jesus says you should love your enemies and be good to them because God is good to people that are His enemies. And if you think about it, in our world today, this really is true, there's some guy somewhere, wheat farmer in Kansas maybe, who's getting ready to start on the year to reap this harvest of wheat. And he depends on this harvest to feed his family, to make ends meet, to live his life. But he can't get his tractor to run this morning. And he's out there working and banging, and he can't find his 716th socket. And he's cussing up a storm. And he's banged his thumb. And he's kicked the cat. And he's yelled at his wife. And he's punched a cow. And he's taken the Lord's name in vain. But you know what? God is going to send rain that's going to bless his crops. And he's going to harvest that crop. Because the rain's going to come, the sun's going to come, and he's going to take that, and he's going to make a living and provide for his family. Why? Because God is good. And God has been good to every single one of us today. God has been much better to every person in the world than any of us would ever deserve. Those things reveal to us something about God. But specifically, what do they reveal? That's the second question. What do we learn from this process that God uses to make Himself known generally. I would call this the content of general revelation. What is God actually teaching us about Himself? If we're paying attention, what are the lessons that we learn? General revelation does not teach us everything we need to know about God. It does not even teach us enough necessarily to have a relationship with God. We need special revelation for that. But we can learn some important facts about who God is that have Massive implications for our lives. So, creation teaches us about God. What does creation teach us? Paul says it teaches us here in these verses, verse 20, His eternal power and His divine nature. That you should be able to look at creation, do some simple math, and understand that there is some powerful being that governs all of this, that put this in place. And that that being that put that in place should have power over my life too. So think about this. You live right now in a solar system on a planet that is 93 million miles away from the sun. And yet science will tell you that that sun is exactly where it needs to be for optimum conditions of life on this earth. And any further away, we're dead. Any closer, we're toast. That our solar system is perfectly fine-tuned for you to live in this world. And that sun is so close to you that this summer, if you're in it too long, it can burn you. But it won't kill you. What does that tell you about God? That God has power, He has wisdom, that He's able to govern His creation. Think about it this way. Have you ever, have you ever been camping or been out away from you know, all the, the lights of the street lamps and the lights of the headlights and just looked up at the stars and those stars take your breath away? Just amazed at how small you are 
at how big all of this universe is. You ever had that happen? All of us have had that happen, haven't we? You are probably in that moment, science says, capable of seeing with your naked eye, maybe 4,500 stars. I don't know who counted that. That was a long night for him, but 4,500 stars. And science would tell you that there are trillions of stars in this universe, many of which we'll never be able to see, even through the most advanced telescopes. That we are microscopic, we are small, and yet all of this vastness is out there in creation. But did you know that science would also tell you that there are more atoms in your body today than there are stars in this universe? That you are yourself a fine-tuned, microscopic universe that is running exactly the way God wants it to run. On average, there are 100,000 hairs on the human head. Each of those hairs comes out of a follicle, and each of those follicles will grow a hair about 20 times over the course of your life. Every day you lose about 100 hairs, and those hairs will grow back. Well, for some of y'all, they grew back. And so, you're going to lose 20 hairs off of your head today. You're probably going to leave a dozen of them here in this place this morning. Maybe half a dozen. And on every single one of those strands of hair off your head, there is imprinted in that DNA that is unique to you and you alone. That with the proper ability and understanding, you could take that and you could say so-and-so was there at that time on that day. And that's in us. God has uniquely coded us. Speaking of hair, I'll say it this way. I was blessed genetically with an extraordinarily healthy set of eyebrows. I went to the barber last week. Barber's finishing up. The barber says to me, do you want me to shave your eyebrows? You want to know you're getting old. Now, when he turns his attention to your ears, that's when you've got real problems. But do you know why I have eyebrows? Here's why I have eyebrows. Because my body is supposed to maintain a temperature at all times of 98.6 degrees. And if my body gets too hot, then it is capable of secreting water out of pores in my skin that are going to cool me down from the outside in. It's called sweat. And yet, to keep sweat out of my eyes, God put these luxurious things on my face <laughs> to keep that sweat and that dirt from getting in my eyes and burning my eyes. You know what? You never would have thought of that, would you? But you know what that teaches us? That God has fine-tuned and designed and wired the universe in a way that is undeniable. And it is as plain as the eyebrows on your face. So the question for us today is if God has that kind of power and that kind of wisdom to put you together and to put the stars in the universe and to control the ocean tides, are you giving that God that kind of power in your life? Are you trusting in His wisdom as He governing, governs your life? Or are you doing like the people in Romans chapter 1? And are you fighting God's right to be God over you? Are you suppressing what you know to be true about God? Could it be that some of you are Christians right now, and God, for whatever reason, who wired you up atomically, determined that DNA, caused your hair to be curly or straight or brown or black or gray or whatever, could it be that right now God is directing your life in a place that you would never take it? And it hurts and it's hard. But can you trust today that the God who micromanages all of creation, that He can handle you? Because He can. But what do we learn from conscience? We learn from creation. God is powerful. God is wise. What do we learn from our conscience? We learn that God is just. 
Now, I know, and I'm sure you're aware, that there are a lot of people that have very naturalistic explanations for everything I told you, from the development of life to the atoms to the stars, even to my eyebrows. They can give you a reason, evolutionarily, biologically, why all that is there without any God. And we've managed to take all of the majesty of creation and the glory of God and put it on a slide under a microscope, and we're not impressed by it anymore. But when Paul talks about our consciences testifying to God in Romans chapter 2, that's a voice that we can't silence as easily. Why? Because all of us have a sense of right and wrong, don't we? Every one of us know that there are people around us that don't measure up to our standard of what's right. And we look down on them. Each of us have had the experience. We were singing about shame just a moment ago. Every one of us has had the experience of not measuring up to our own standard of what is right. And we felt guilt. All of us have looked at our world, whatever your politics is, whatever your opinions about how our country is doing may be, you've looked out at some point in your life at our nation and you said, what in the world is wrong with people? What's happening to us? Things are out of control. And even when we make good decisions, we may feel the right kind of pride over the fact that we did it right. And we can explain, I believe, uh, from an evolutionary perspective, you could explain the development of moral ideas, moral values. There are certain things that are good for people. But you cannot take naturalistic evolution and explain Moral absolutes. You cannot say that there are things that are always right and things that are always wrong without saying there's somebody who said what's always right and always wrong. Why is it always wrong for someone to murder? Why is it always wrong for powerful people to take advantage of the weak? Why are some things always wrong? And why do we feel that inside of us? The answer is because there's a God who is just who put that inside of us. And so our conscience teaches us that God is a righteous God who is leading us one day to a final judgment where He will right every wrong, no matter where the chips may fall. Why is it that people march in the streets for justice against oppression? Whatever their cause might be, why do they do that? Because there's in them a sense of justice. Even sometimes Christians, are, Christians will hear from other people, they will say, Maybe about an issue like abortion or homosexuality. And if you want to hear what the Bible says about homosexuality and the role of the church in relationship to that, I would encourage you to be here at our Wednesday night Bible study this week. We're going to deal with that issue at 6.30. But one of the things I've heard people say to Christians is they say you need to adjust the way you view abortion or homosexuality because you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Now what is, honestly, what is the presupposition in that statement? The presupposition in that statement is that history is going somewhere. And that history may judge us. And folks, that's exactly right. History is going somewhere. And where it's going is to the God who made us. And He absolutely will judge us. And so all of those facts point us today to an inescapable conclusion that we are all God's creatures living in God's world. And we will at points actually live like we are God's creatures. In God's world. That's why we experience guilt. That's why we experience moral outrage. That's why we look at other people and get so frustrated when they don't do what we know that they ought to do. Because we are God's creatures that are designed to live in relationship to Him. But we also learn from common grace the simple fact that God is good. That God is good. Now the, Bible, the Bible's way of looking at the world and explaining the world. The Bible would tell you that this world is a place full of sin. The Bible would tell you that this world is cursed. The Bible would tell you that at many points life is going to be hard. But the Bible would also want you to see that over your life is a good God. 
And that God is good and that because He is good, your life is good. And all men have experienced the goodness of God. Man, the first time your kids say dad, dad, or mama, that's good, isn't it? Eating a sausage pizza, man, that's good. Life is good. God is good. But how many of us have lived as if God is not good? How many of us have really lived and failed to trust what God has said in His Word because we think, I don't know if that's best for me. How many of us have looked at what God is doing in our lives and said, this cannot be good and I need to go a different direction? Even Paul says in Romans chapter 1 something unusual about people and their sin. He says that they have become ungrateful. They've become ungrateful. They've looked at all God has given them in His goodness and said it's not enough. Is that not how we live? Are we not selfish and entitled and say God owes me a little bit more? And is our sin not running away from God saying I'm going to get the more that I deserve and the good that I deserve outside of God? God has taught us in creation that He is powerful. He's taught us in our consciences that He is holy and just. And He's taught us in common grace that He is good. As you can imagine, knowing that God is powerful, knowing He's holy, knowing He's good, that knowledge has massive implications for our lives. It's the third question I would ask today. What do we do with the truth that we have? I would say these are the consequences of common grace or the consequences of general revelation. What does it mean for me today? First of all, and I pray all of you hear me today, even if you never come back to, to hear anything that's ever preached from this place again, I want you to know that you are responsible for the truth that you have. When Paul writes in Romans chapter 2 about men who have lived and died and will be judged without the law of God, he's saying that those people are responsible for the truth that they have. They are responsible for what they've done with what God has revealed to them in creation, in their conscience, and in common grace. You are not responsible for the truth that you don't have. You are not responsible for more than what you have. You are not responsible, certainly, for less than what you have. And what Paul is saying in Romans chapter number 2 is that even though all men in the world do not have enough truth, truth to save them, all men in the world have enough truth to justly condemn them. Why? Because they've seen God's power and they've fought against it. They've seen God's goodness and they've walked away from it. They've heard the testimony in their conscience of God's justice and they have rejected it. They've seen against what they knew was wrong. They've jumped into what they knew was wrong. They failed to do what is right. And so all men stand, as Paul said, guilty and without any excuse before God. All men in the world are justly condemned before God without the Lord Jesus. But here's why this is a particularly unique problem for you today. Because you, sitting in a Baptist church where the Word of God is preached and the Gospel is made clear, the name of Jesus has been sung, and God's people have so faithfully communicated to you that our God is awesome. You have more truth than just creation. You have more truth than just your conscience. You have more than just common grace. In fact, the reality is that when you stand before a righteous God of judgment, you have more to answer for than most people who have ever lived. You know, you have more of a Bible to read than, say, David when he killed Goliath. Do you know that you have more truth than the majority of people that have ever lived? And friend, that is not something that you need to take lightly. I can't think of anybody that is responsible for more truth than people who have sat under the teaching of the Word of God and the teaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, ironically, for those of us that have such exposure to such truth, it's easy for us to take it for granted, isn't it? It's easy for us to treat it as something light, as if it doesn't matter, as if God hasn't done something special and amazing for us, even though He has. 
So let me ask you a question. For those of you that are used to this whole church thing. Do you believe that one day as a pastor, I'm going to stand before God and give a special account for what I teach you from this pulpit? I absolutely believe that. It scares me to death. But I believe it's true. That one day I'm going to have to stand before God and explain why it is on the second Sunday of January in 2019 I said what I said. Now, do you believe that one day you are going to stand before God and be responsible for the truth that you've heard? Let's go one step further. Let's go one step further. Do you believe that one day you are going to stand before God and answer for the truth that you didn't hear but was made available to you? Because we have at Sharon Heights, we are blessed to have so many opportunities for you to grow deeper and to learn more from the Word of God. We have Sunday school, Sunday mornings. We have discipleship training on Sunday night. We have a worship service on Sunday night. We have our youth group that meets on Wednesday nights. We have uh, our Wednesday night Bible study, activities for all of our kids. And yet whether it's busyness or laziness or a million other things that may keep us out of that, are we going to stand before God one day and the Lord's going to say, where were you at? And even if it doesn't happen like that, folks, I can tell you from my experience as a pastor, there have been countless times where I have preached a message that somebody needed to hear and they weren't there to hear it. That God had something specific to say to their life that would have just helped them. That would have encouraged them. So let me just encourage you or challenge you to be in your place when we meet together as God's people. To make yourself available to every single opportunity that you have in life to hear the truth that God has given you in His Word. Ladies, if you're free on Tuesday and Wednesday morning, our ladies meet for a Bible study. You ought to be there for that. If you can, it will help your life. Make every opportunity, take every opportunity that you have. Because we will answer for what we've had. Church, we've had a lot. We've had a lot. Second, I think we learn from all of this teaching about general revelation is that there is a huge missionary responsibility on those of us who belong to the Lord. Because everybody does not have what we have. Everybody has not been exposed to what we have been exposed to. And as God's people, we should want to be the ones who take that truth to them. And indeed, that's the responsibility God has given us and the opportunity that God has given us. So one of the questions that people have a lot of times about the Bible is they say, well, you know, the Bible says that that Jesus is the only way to heaven, but there are all these people over here that have never heard the name of Jesus, so how is it fair for, for God to judge them when they haven't had the opportunity to be saved? And the answer isn't what we've talked about today, that they have sinned against what they do know to be true about God, and that God will judge them based upon the truth that they have, and they will be judged without any excuse. They'll have no rebuttal and no reply. But folks... That also means that God wants to use us as the avenue to take more truth to them. See, what theologians do when they talk about general revelation is they talk about all of God's revealing work in those general terms, what all people have, and then in special revelation. Sometimes they call it natural revelation, what occurs naturally in the world without any further interference from God, and supernatural revelation. If you were with us over Christmas as we studied through the Gospel of Matthew, you saw that supernatural revelation. You saw Joseph talking to angels and having dreams and all these things. The Word of God falls under that supernatural revelation. But have you thought today that when you go to work tomorrow, that God wants to use you and the story of how He changed your life as the miracle that points somebody to truth? One of our students, have you thought that tomorrow when you go into school, that God wants to use your testimony, your integrity, the different kind of life that you live. He wants to use that as the miracle that points to who Jesus is. 
That God Himself has in, not just spoken to us through creation, but He has invaded His creation. And He has made His people a new creation that point other people in darkness to Jesus who is the light. And so that you are the miraculous medium that God uses to make Himself known. You are the means that God speaks into the world for some people so that He can point them to His Word, the written Word, and point them to His Son who is the living Word. Jesus said it that way in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, when He said that we are the light of the world. That men should see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. We want to make the invisible visible. You can't see the grace of God until you see it in the child of God. You can't see the awesomeness of God until you see God's people worshiping. You can't see the glory of God until you see somebody who's living a life dedicated to worship. But above all, understand that you will be one day destined to stand before your God and you will stand there without excuse. Because all of us at some point or another have failed to respond to the truth that we have. We've lived as if there is no God. We fall into our sins. The same sins that we judge other people for. Often we're guilty of them. But this is the good news that the Bible gives us. That goes far beyond what God has said merely in creation. And that is in the story of creation. Even though men were rejecting the truth about God. God robed Himself in our flesh, put Himself in our world, and His name is Jesus, who is the living Word of God, who dwelt among us. And John said, we beheld His glory. He said, with our eyes, we looked at the Word of God walking in our world. Jesus said, if you look at me, you've seen the Father. And He said, this is eternal life in John 17, 3, that you can know the true God through me. Friends, that is the gospel message, that God is so determined to know you that He became like you in this world. That He took your sin, took your guilt, faced your temptations, and offers you His own eternal life. The good news goes beyond just you can look at creation and the clouds and the stars and the leaves and say, oh, there must be a God out there. But that there's a God who came here. And that there's a God who wants to live in here. So today, I want you to think about your relationship to the truth that you have. In particular, I want you to think about our moral outrage that is so in vogue in our culture at this time. We judge. And yet, for some reason, we judge other people and we still feel guilty for things we do. Feeling like somebody is going to judge us. How do you escape that? How do you unravel that Gordian knot? The only place to look is in Christ, who was judged for us. And so, do we look to our God who put that in us? And do we trust Him to forgive us? Do we rely on Him as He directs our life? Do we say, Lord, I want to know more about what you've said. I want to know more about what you expect from me. So let me learn from this book and let me learn from you. Friend, I will tell you today, God has revealed much to you. And you are responsible for it. And you will answer for it. Why not take advantage of it instead of taking it for granted? And why not jump on every opportunity God has, not just for you to learn truth, but to show truth in this world. To be the walking, talking, living, breathing miracle of a changed life that proved God is a God of grace who saves in Jesus. I know you don't want to go to work tomorrow. But wouldn't it be better to go with that attitude? I know you don't want to go to school tomorrow. And nobody here blames you. But would it not be better to go in there saying God wants me to be the miracle that shows who He is? Let's stand together today. Our musicians are coming.
The invitation is today simply that if you realize that you have not really responded to the truth you have, that you've been resisting it and fighting and rejecting it, you can come today and the one who said that he was the way, the truth, and the life, he will give you life and lead you in truth. As we sing today, if this is spoken to you, the altar is open while we sing.